This is Doing Good Through Food. I'm Alex Coffin, and my guest on the show today is Rachel Karasik. Rachel's head chef at The Good Egg in Kingley Court in London, um, and she's worked across the industry in a number of areas, from pop-ups to private events, um, and she's worked as a freelancer, spending time on farms, uh, at street food stalls, pop-ups, and in catering and in restaurants as well. In 2015, she took a break from the kitchen, and she completed a master's degree in food anthropology. In that same year, she took part in Chefs of Tomorrow, which is a, a programme highlighting young cooking talents in the UK. She says she got into food by accident, but feels on some level it was probably destined to be. Um, it seems really clear to me from, from all I've been able to see so far that she's got this real passion for food and was being drawn into it uh, from an early age and, and taking part in food projects and things like that before she even got into the industry as a career. Um, she's someone I think has thought a lot about the role of food in the world and how it shapes culture and affects the way that we relate to one another. So I'm really looking forward to hearing what she has to say. Rachel, welcome to Doing Good Through Food. Thanks, Alex. Um, yeah, I'm really excited to be here. Brilliant. Well, I'm excited to have you here as well. And I thought I'd like to ask you as a sort of, just right at the beginning, you, um, like you said, you sort of got into food as a career later, you know, slightly after some other things. Um, you studied art curation as a degree. I was wondering what, uh, what sort of effect, if any, or what parallels, you know, what you've taken from that into running a food business. Yeah, it's really interesting because when, when I did that course, I, by the end of it, I was like, I don't want anything to do with the art world or with curation or anything like that. But the idea of curation is to design and create an experience. Mm. So generally that's, that's in a museum or in a gallery. So mm. it's about which pieces go on the wall, where they go on the wall, what story is being told alongside them. Mm. Um, and that is the exact same thing that applies to food. So particularly with the pop-ups and the events that I've done, you can use that same mentality where it's, it's not just about a, a menu of food that tastes nice. It's about taking people through an experience. So it's not only about the food that's on the plate, but it's the food that came before it and the food that comes after it. And what kind of like front of house experience they have, what crockery it's on, what the decor of the space is, all of those things contribute to how people experience that meal. So having done a museum curation degree, it's always kind of been in the back of my mind that I'm designing that person's experience mm. and that there are so many factors that play into whether that experience is positive or negative or makes them think differently about what they've walked into when they walk out again yeah it just sort of struck me like there might be parallels you know something about communicating a a message or a, you know some some kind of um theme that runs through what you're doing it just uh it's it's, it's, it's an interesting thing to hear yeah and i've been i've been really lucky too that i've gotten to kind of collaborate with architects and artists on food events where I sometimes I'm actually working with a curator mm. to design a meal that goes alongside an exhibition or in collaboration with an artist's work in response to that. So that's also been a kind of avenue that's mm. been open to me because I've got these kind of tangential ties. I guess it can sort of speak the language as well to a degree. That must Yeah, a bit rusty, but yeah. <laughs> I, I thought that sort of the first thing I'd like to <clears throat> kind of really ask you in depth, I suppose, is about 
about food anthropology, which is, like I said in the, you know, when I was introducing it, that was what you studied. You, you studied for a master in masters in uh, food anthropology. I suppose the, the first question I was wondering was why, why that specifically? You know, you you there's there are quite a lot of uh, sort of academic roots that you could take with food. You know, the food, food sort of science and and similar sorts of things. What what was it about that particularly? I think I've always been really interested in in food and culture and how people relate to food. And when I first got into cooking, I kind of just for about two or three years straight was just in the kitchen mm. and just just cooking and didn't I mean I don't say just cooking. I was cooking, but I didn't really I have never stopped cooking. <laughs> I know yeah, I never yeah. stopped cooking. Mm. And I got to a point where I felt like I was I was losing the context of the food that I was cooking. And um, like it was just a process almost. like it was like it was a process that I still loved, but I missed having the time to think about food mm. rather than think about cooking. Um, and it was the the program I did was one that I kind of first saw when I was still doing my BA, but at the time I wasn't ready to stay in academia. Um, and so it was always in the back of my mind that if if I ever decided to do a master's, this would definitely be in the shortlist. And like you say, there's incredible education routes relating to food, like food science. There's programs that look more at food policy mm-hmm. and more about kind of sustainability and systems of change, which are all really necessary. But for kind of what I personally wanted to do, I really liked how food anthropology was really broad and kind of touched into, it touched into things like policy and sustainability and um, environmental impact and all that. But then it also touches on things like cultural differences or importances of particular dishes or particular, particular food processes or how families pass food knowledge from one generation to the next, mm. to random food practices related to holidays or or whatnot. It's just it's it was so much broader and so much more um, focused on the social side of food, mm-hmm. uh, which was what I'm kind of really interested in. So I thought I may as well jump into the social side and then give myself some broader context of like where food fits into this world and where cooking food fits into this world and then come out the other side of it with, I guess, like a, a different outlook on what f- what food is. Mm. What, what do you think you sort of took from it? I mean, so you, you kind of... You, I guess you wouldn't go into a course like that unless you were convinced of the sort of social importance of food. And obviously, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of in food and you'll probably feel that yourself anyway so did, did it kind of just confirm things or did it did it kind of give you something more than you than you had before it it confirmed some things but it also I think the main thing I learned which I think is something that is more generally based in anthropology than necessarily food specifically is just how contextual everything is so mm. what a plate of food a specific plate of food means to one person will mean something completely different 
to the next person and the next person and the next person. Mm-hmm. And that each one of those meanings is, is valid. Mm-hmm. I think that's one, that's probably the main thing that I learned is that the, this idea of right and wrong and food and bad and good, or, um, even like industrial and small scale, it's not, it's not binary. Mm it's on a spectrum and there's so much gray area that it, I guess it gave me a lot more kind of empathy when thinking about food issues and the way that people interact with food. Um, and just there's, there's so much more you have to understand behind what's happening Mm. to have like a kind of valid opinion on whether or not something's right or wrong. Do you think, do you, I suppose, um, suppose sort of being devil's advocate, mm. but do you, I mean, do you think there are things, do you think anything can be explained in terms of culture? You know, if, if there are, I mean, I'm trying to think of like a contentious example, but you know, something like foie gras is culturally yeah. French, part of their gastronomy, shark fin soup is a, is a, you know, there's a cultural case maybe to be made for that, or you could say that it's, you know, it's it's something that's part of a culture mm. and people do say things like that do you, do you think that kind of argument holds water always or do you think there's a there's a I do, yeah i mean i don't i don't think that it's it's an excuse mm. i don't think that it's like you can go and say well you know cultural differences means that we just have to accept everything because if you look particularly with the idea of tradition like tradition doesn't really exist traditions are created and perpetuated but traditions are always being created they're always being lost they're always being fiddled with and changed so what someone considers a tradition if you look back might only actually be 20 years old but then does 20 years old constitute a tradition like there are so many things that change that means that yeah with with contentious food items and contentious food practices Mm. it's not necessarily that that because it's always happened is an excuse that it should keep happening. Mm. But I do think it's important to, within that opinion, understand why why it was a thing that started happening in the first place. Mm. And then look at, well, if this thing doesn't exist, what what might replace it? Or what, if we do, like say, if we do want to start getting rid of foie gras, mm what happens to the farmers that produce foie gras? What happens to, to the industry around that? What could they switch into that's a more humane practice or a more sustainable practice or, or whatnot that still allows them to make a living? Or it's, I guess, and like the food anthropology just, it made me think more broadly about, well, it's, there's, there's not really any easy answers. It's not mm. that things can't change, but with each thing that changes there are knock-on effects that can reach far far wider than you think Mm -hmm. so if you are if you are determined to change something about an industry it's also your responsibility to think about all of the implications of what that change Mm. means Mm. i think well i think it's good advice you know that sort of i think if people are advocating for something that you that you sort of think think properly about the the other 
side of the position. I think it's quite it's quite easy to to take up a sort of us versus them, the other you know other people are bad or you know evil. Even that's mm. I think particularly in food, the decisions that you make have quite a kind of direct impact on people and on the world, and you know people feel strongly about it. It's something that's come up in other conversations. You know, this this sort of need if you want to change something, you have to actually kind of engage genuinely and that means trying to understand yeah I think it's like that it's that understanding that's really important mm. that uh, uh, yeah and any I mean even the kind of debates around um, processed food like who is it one angry chef the, mm. like his his arguments about processed food being like yeah they might not be the healthiest but then they're a, a cheap, valid way of feeding a family, mm. which is the way that a lot of people choose to feed their families. Based, I think, I think uh, Ruby Tando's written a book recently that's yeah. sort of a, a similar sort of... It seems like there are kind of a number of voices that are not like a backlash, but a lot of, a lot of the positions people take on food are quite kind of uh, sort of have this element of judgment in them you know there's a real kind of moral high ground sort of they seem you know it, it comes across that way at least sometimes and I think yeah it seems like there are people trying to redress that a little bit to sort of say you know it's not necessarily that black and white and also like it's the the real issues that are present in the food world can't be changed by individuals. They're going to have to be changed by major, large-scale, systematic change. And that can be kick-started by individuals. But I think particularly in the world as it is today with so much crap going on, it's, we, ha- we can't be too hard on ourselves mm. and, and, and realize that we're part of a greater movement you can be part of that movement, but still not feel guilty for having some monster munch every once in a while. It's good to know. Okay. No, I, I, I agree, definitely. Um, just thinking about the course still, was, was there anything that you learned that really kind of surprised you? Tons. So much. I mean, the way that the course was set up was every week focused on a different subject, um, so one week it might be the World Trade Organization, one week it might be Fair Trade, one week it might be uh, food and memory, and etc. Um, I think one thing that, that surprised me was in as far as how Fair Trade works was that um, there's a whole kind of branch of farmers that fall below fair trade that can't be part of it because they're not quite big enough which is I thought was a really it's not quite the picture it's not quite the picture you have Um, yeah so that's not right Uh, and then but then also what's interesting is that a lot of the farmers that are involved in fair trade sell well not a lot but some of them will also sell on the regular market, just depending on which prices are better. Mm. So fair trade basically guarantees a certain bottom price 
for whatever their product is. But there are times when the market will actually give a better price. So what's interesting is that mm. is that you could have, say, two chocolate bars, and one's marked fair trade and one's not, but the cocoa's coming from the same farm, mm. and they got a similar price. Or even when, more. Or more. even more when they sold it. So it was, th- like, that's, like, a perfect example of kind of what food anthropology kind of opened up with the kind of the mm. complexity of some of these things that we think are straightforward or we think function in one way. Mm-hmm. But then when you actually kind of dig into it and see kind of what people who have kind of gone out and interviewed farmers and interviewed mm. people like a whole along the way, um, that the reality of that is often far more complex. Yeah, Un- unintended consequences of, of policy, I guess. There must be... Must be all- manner of examples yeah. of that my other my other favorite fact that i learned was um there's a an amazing article and i'll find it and give you the title and the author i'll, I'll share it on about the communal kitchens in maoist china hmm. and how the kind of ill running of them is partially what read led to the revolution Really? Because basically what they did was got got rid of home kitchens because home kitchens, the home hearth, that was where people collected privately mm. and they didn't want people to gather privately where they didn't know what was being said. So they literally melted down people's pots and pans, got rid of home hearths, which meant people couldn't even couldn't boil water um, and built these kind of huge centralized canteens. Um, and at the beginning had kind of lots of free-flowing food coming in and and a lot of people liked it. I mean, you could go in, you, there was always food to eat. Everyone could eat really well. You could sit down with your neighbors and and it was really good. But then at one point, the kind of the food stopped coming mm-hmm. and people had no alternative because they couldn't, they didn't have the materials to cook at home. And it got to a point where that hunger that was created and that lack of being able to sustain themselves in times of need mm. was one of the contributing factors <clears throat> to kind of a pushback. Mm. Um, it's, it's, yeah. <clears throat> it's really, it's just such a sort of basic fundamental parts of people's lives isn't it I guess if you if you're going to meddle in it in any way you're going to have quite some strong reactions good mm. or bad you know <laughs> um do you so do you um study the food history of kind of particular cultures in a, in much detail or was it was it sort of more about like you know the, the way the common ways that cultures work in terms of food it's uh it was pretty, like, it, as far as the course, it was pretty broad in that you kind of read articles about really specific communities, but all around the world in all different types of communities. Um, I wrote my dissertation on um, food in historical reenactment in the UK. Okay. So I went and spent a week dressed as a tutor at a place called Tkemal Hall, which mm. is incredible. Um, in in their kitchen, so they have one of the few still functioning Tudor kitchens in the country, 
and cooked alongside these people who have been reenacting for 20, 25 years and mm. learned Tudor recipes and cooked over coals and fire for the week and only had like a knife and a spoon mm. to work with. And um, it was it was fascinating. I was kind of asking the question of how how do we as kind of people in, well then, 2015 relate to food history and do these active spaces where you can see it happening and you can smell it and you can taste it and all of that. Do they have any impact on how we cook day to day? Mm. What, do, what do you think? Uh, it turns out it doesn't really. Not really. Not really. Like the people who take part in reenactment, they have all of that knowledge. That knowledge is there. But a lot of it's not particularly practical to do in day-to-day life. So they might occasionally cook a recipe. But for them, it's like the space of reenacting is where they get to act out that knowledge. Mm -hmm. So for them, it's kind of this, that's the time to kind of use all those techniques that they've learned in all those spaces. What would you get from it if it's sort of, if it's not a, you know, it's not a sort of thing that's going to inform their life outside of it. Is it, is it, um, is it sort of just, is it the community that goes around it and just a sort of a social thing to do? Or do you think there's something about connecting with the historic food and the, the kind of, the whole reenactment piece that goes with that? I think it's both. I mean, mm. that particular reenactment community is, is really tight. So it's my, my husband and his family his parents and his brother still still reenact, and he did as a kid, and so they kind of welcomed me into this community, and it's it's incredibly tight knit. I mean, there's three generations of families some that take part in this, and it it is like walking into a different world. There's during the day when there's kind of the public come and see, there's no technology around. Um, everyone is dressed in kind of traditional. Tudor outfits of the year that they've chosen. You have a Tudor name. You speak in, in a Tudor way, and you create these personas for yourself. So, for a lot of people, it's it's an escape. You kind of can have this whole other life almost mm. in <clears throat> fifteen something um, that you get to come to and you camp out, and it's and and it is amazing. I mean, the stuff that that we cooked just one, how many similarities it shares with stuff that we cook today. A lot of the stews were kind of, um, because at that point was Henry VIII and there was the spice trade. So you got a lot of spice trade, which meant that a lot of English stews that the, the richer families would eat aren't that dissimilar to a tagine, um, Mm. as far as the spice balance of cinnamon and, and clove and, a lot of flavour. Things. A lot mean, of flavour. A things, lot of sugar too. <laughs> I suppose things that have kind of um, almost been re- seemingly have been reintroduced, kind of in our lifetimes, or at least in sort of our parents' lifetimes. You know, when you think about British food, kind of a couple of generations back, didn't have a particularly good reputation for you know, flavour and spices and things like that. It's interesting to you know it did way back yeah that, that was part of it and like like Damon made game pie which mm. is you can still find that today like and and also the whole kind of 
fascination with cooking over fire, which is you look at a lot of restaurants in London and having open fires is is really popular and it it does give a different flavor to food. So to spend a whole week exclusively cooking over fire, even the pot like even your saucepan or your frying pan mm-hmm. with over char like over charcoal. Um it just does just make things taste different and it gives a whole different context to um to to life in that time Mm. that you can read about it and you can look at pictures but to kind of be able to viscerally experience it and to taste it and to see what it's like to eat your whole meal with a spoon because Mm. forks weren't around yet um at least not for peasants Mm. um and it it does kind of it does make you think differently about what what day-to-day life might have been like. Mm. I was I was thinking with um, you know I don't, when I knew you'd done the this course it was I knew I wanted to sort of ask you about it and I was thinking about um, kind of food and culture in generally and more generally and I was thinking in some cultures and the one that sort of sprung to mind was was America it's you know the United States it's quite a there's a sort of big national food identity or it's, it's something kind of um, it's almost something I read recently that kind of stuck in my head when I started thinking about this or popped up it was that um, it was really one of the first ways that Americans defined themselves as not European colonists but as Americans themselves because they had all this, this sort of bounty of food in the available there and it, so it, this it sort of fed into Thanksgiving and into this kind of you know food just being this core core part of the big national identity and I was just I suppose I was thinking is is that a common common thing or even sort of you know does that happen regularly because it seems like in the UK there isn't a in quite the same way you know like you were just saying mm. it hasn't carried through in in perhaps quite the same way there's it means a lot on a family level you know the, the kind of things that you pass through person to person or within a sort of smaller culture but not on a big national identity kind of way is, is that unusual is the... I, I think in some ways it is kind of unusual for the the UK but it, it really depends on on like the country's history so there's um there's an anthropologist named Arjun Apadurai and he's written quite a lot about food in India and about creating national identity through food and this idea of having having really specific regional food, but then also um, there being a point where there was this conscious effort to create a national identity through (coughs) recipes and through dishes. And he goes on to kind of list all of these cookbooks that came out that tried to meld regional dishes into this kind of amalgamation of a a countrywide cuisine. Um, his stuff's amazing. I, I really recommend mm. reading it. Um, but then conversely, you have, um, I think it's, there's another article that's about Bolivian food and how um, for like several decades, if not much longer, um, Bolivia's food 
wasn't really part of its main culture. So if you the the, the anthropologist that writes the article says that you know he would go into people's houses with the intention of of tasting Bolivian food, mm-hmm. and he would get served imported canned spam and mm-hmm. and pineapple slices from America because that was the kind of sign of hospitality and wealth was to be able to afford these imported stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, meanwhile, it was incredibly hard for him to find people who would actually serve him food made with ingredients grown in the country. But that, that, that has kind of really shifted in the last 20 odd years. And I think food, just generally people are making more of an effort like globally to to shout about their food traditions rather than there seemed to be a long time where the kind of like in that case in Bolivia the importing other people's food mm. was kind of the thing and now I think people are trying more and more to showcase what they have and you see that a lot in kind of even just like current the current London restaurant scene is that you're getting more and more restaurants that are focused much more specifically on regions or culinary traditions um, that are very specific rather than going for a more general regional Mm. like broadly regional food style Fascinating stuff, and I kind of I feel like I could I could keep keep kind of asking you about food anthropology, but I there are other things I would want to talk to you about, so I might might leave it there just for a minute. One of the, one of the main things that I wanted to ask you about one of the sort of other big areas was um, culture in kitchens, because I know that that's that's something that that you've thought about as well. Um, and I suppose when I, you know if you say kitchen culture to pretty much anybody, you know, anyone with a kind of passing uh, knowledge or understanding of it, you'd think, at least traditionally, it's quite a macho sort of a culture. There's, um, you know, the, the kind of, particularly in sort of restaurants or sort of, you know, bigger, higher-end kind of things, they're quite rigidly structured environments. There's high pressure and long hours and everything that goes with that. And it, you know, it's almost sort of a, like the angry chef is kind of, it's almost a caricature, I guess, but there's kind of, this truth in that you know you, you see or some truth in it um has, has that been or to what degree has that been your experience of of kitchens you know you've as someone who's worked within them a lot um well so it's interesting because whether consciously or unconsciously i have spent very little time in the kitchen in the in the types of kitchens that people stereotypically think of is kitchen culture. Mm-hmm. Um, I think particularly I started out in pop ups running my I kind of did it a little bit backwards in that I jumped straight into running my own pop up and doing private catering, having zero experience mm. in the food industry, and then as I went along, started freelancing in other people's spaces and started to to learn more and more about how actual kitchens run. Uh-huh. Um, and, but through that, whether by 
just by the the people that I've ended up um, meeting and and just also the nature of of I guess pop ups and catering being less rigid, far less rigid, far less organized, far less um, militant in the way that they work. Um, most of the kitchens I've been in haven't been that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, I guess unlike traditionally in the food industry, m- the majority of the kitchens that I've, I've worked in have had quite large, um, quite a large number of women that work in them. Mm. Uh, I've worked in very few spaces that have been completely male dominated, um, which has also been really interesting but that means I think I have quite a skewed view of what kitchens uh-huh. are like. Um, but it's, yeah, it's interesting. I think that there's a lot of talk going on in the last, particularly in the last few years, about kitchen culture and about how it needs to change. And um, Lucky Peach, the magazine that's no longer around, unfortunately, did a whole a whole issue all about kitchen culture and got top chefs from around the world to write about what they're doing in their kitchens to try to change things. And it's like Rene Redzepi has talked quite a lot about, um, about how he used to be and how he used to be a really shouty chef and used to kind of run his kitchens the way that he'd been trained. I think there's a, there's a big element of that, isn't yeah. it? It's kind of, monkey see monkey do you know if you've come through a structure like that I remember Gordon Ramsay talked about kind of being torn to pieces by like Marco Pierre White or whoever it was and you know thinking I'm never going to do that and then you yeah. know now he's you know the F word and everything you know he, he's that yeah. guy but there have always been kind of examples of people that haven't been that way I guess there's you know the, for all of those sorts of people there's the you know like the Michelle Ruse and the Raymond Blancs and People who have, and you know, people like Tom Kerry's maybe more recently, you know, people who don't do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I mean, even, even Redzepi, like he says that there was a moment where he kind of, it clicked with him what he was doing and how that's not the culture he wanted to create. And so over the last however many years, he's been actively trying to create better work environments and provide more opportunities for his staff and to be more, I guess, accepting and patient and, and everything and empathetic in his interactions with staff. Do you, do you think there's ever a case for that kind of old stereotypical kind of kitchen culture? I mean, cause the people who've been through it might say, you know, they're kind of, Precision, the kind of the quality, the standards, whatever you're able to, you know, that that delivers, you know, if you kind of put aside the costs of it for a session, you know, but the, the, the kind of quality, what you can achieve through that system is, is ultimately better. Do you think there's any kind of, any kind of case for that? I, again, see, devil's advocate. I, I guess I that's know. like, if, if you're thinking that food is the only thing that is important, in a restaurant but even then I don't think that you need to treat people 
horribly to get the best out of them. And I think the majority of people, you don't get the best out of them if you shout at them. And if you if you can imagine that you walk into work, say it's not a restaurant, say it's an office, and every single moment of the day you are stressed out and on your toes because you're just waiting for your boss to snap. And then at, that is hard enough. I have friends who've been working in other industries who've worked terrible jobs with bosses like that. And it's, it seeps into every other part of their life. They can't let it go when they leave. And that's, that's in an office with air conditioning and where you sit down most of the day. So then you add in fire and heat and sharp things and the kind of inconsistency of not knowing what a service will bring. And it's no wonder that chefs have burnt out and kind of live the rest of their lives really unhealthily a lot of the times because when you're you can't just switch off when you've experienced that you can't just walk out at the end of a shift where someone screamed at you for 12 hours straight or 15 hours straight and then think you're going to have some kind of normal functional life for the six hours a day that you're not sleeping or in the kitchen um so I guess it's I think there was a time where I think it was seen that that was the only acceptable way to work, but there are so many more examples of success, successful restaurants and successful kitchens and chefs that are, are managing to make incredible food and have incredible dining experiences without it being to like the complete detriment of their staff. And it's not something that's easy whatsoever. I mean, to maintain the amount of patience and calm needed to not lose it in the middle of a really busy service is incredibly challenging. But it's also, it's very, very rarely worth it to, to me at least to to not maintain that calm because the the repercussions on the person that I'm speaking to or or to me or to the 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 restaurant or to the service isn't just isn't worth it. There's so many other ways that you can deal with a lot of the problems that come up in kitchens mm. without having to make someone feel so small. So you've recently, not recently, but relatively recently, you, you've, uh, yeah, I think you said three months into your... Yeah, about um, three months. Three, three months into this head chef position at the Good Egg. So you're, and it's a new venture. Um, you are, I suppose, instilling a culture in this place at the moment. How... How are you doing it? What What is the culture that you're looking to put into this kitchen and, and how are you putting it in place? Uh, so I should say that this is this is the second site. So there is, and, and Joel and Alex who opened it, they kind of started it as a pop-up about five, six years ago. So, the, so there is an identity. So there, is, a culture. there is an identity <clears throat> and a culture within the company already. Yeah. Um, but... Obviously, the first site is 30 seats, 
and in Stokedainton, which is much more of a kind of neighborhood restaurant kind of feel. And this is just off Carnaby Street, almost 100 seats. And it's a, it's a very yeah. different vibe. So to, to, to transfer that culture and try to make it work within such a different context um, is really challenging, but it's something that we collectively as a team um, are really actively trying to, to foster and develop. I suppose what, it, what the the identity of the, the sort of business as a yeah. whole is kind of set, but you as the head chef, yeah, the the kind of the culture of the kitchen team, at least, if not the kind of the whole operational team, is really going to come from from you to yeah. a degree. So how? Yes, yeah, so I guess what, number what one is like, <laughs> yeah. um, like I don't yell, right, and I don't want any of my chefs to yell in the kitchen. In part because it's an open kitchen, so if you yell, everyone can hear you. But also because it's not a very big kitchen, and even when it's really crazy busy and we've got checks flying all over the place and, and food slammed, you're never more than about seven or eight steps from anyone in the kitchen. So to take the extra 30 seconds to walk over to someone and and say something to them at a normal level about if about whatever it is you need to ask them. Um, I just think gets is, is not that much extra effort. It doesn't disrupt service that much, but it means that you, you help kind of limit the, the, the rise of tension that can come from what is already a, a really hectic space. Mm. Um, so that's one of them. I mean, I will say this is this is my first head chef job, mm. and prior to this, I was basically either running solo or just had people with them with me for specific events. So it's been a huge learning curve, and I've read a lot about kitchen culture, but obviously implementing it is mm. something completely different. And I think it's a real challenge that I will constantly be working on and constantly be trying mm -hmm. to improve but yeah I think some of it is just I don't think it's rocket science though I think a lot of it is just it's trying to have some empathy with people and mm -hmm. um, and like you never like you never know what's happening when someone in someone's life when they leave the restaurant mm -hmm. so it's things like if you notice someone's having a hard hard service or something, just taking that extra five minutes at the end to check in with them and and see what's up and kind of debrief mm. about kind of what may have gone wrong or, or and, also, and just to be like, and, and how are you doing? Is there like, is there anything outside of work that's making this harder? And mm. they can or they, do or don't divulge that but that's up to them but um to try to give people a space where they don't feel like they have to come in and be like this rock hard entity mm. but that like we're all human we all have tough days and that the majority of the time it's not the end of the world and that as long as we can learn learn from that and push forward and and improve mm. then like that's what counts 
Um, so yeah, I, yeah, it's that's only the three months. That's, you, that's, that's what, that's what I'm, for. I'm aiming for. Yeah. yeah. The, um, do you, th to what degree do you think that this sort of shifting culture, do you think it's kind of come, do you think it's just sort of a sign of the times more generally? Um, the way that, you know, that, that kind of, that kind of culture, macho cultures more widely, you know, are less and less acceptable. I mean, I'd say they're really kind of, I can't think of an example off the top of my head where that is really acceptable anymore. Um, do you think that sort of, do you think it's kind of just been driven by external things or do you, has, has the sort of change come internally as well? Do you think more, you know, whether, whether that's from, I suppose the example might, the answer might well be both those things, but, uh, but you know, from having more, more women in, in the kitchens, um, from it being less male dominated, what, what do you think? Is... Uh, I think, I think it's a bit of both. Mm. Um, I do think that there has been like a, a cultural, well, there's a few things. I think there's been a cultural shift here, but well, like particularly like here and in the US, mm. um, with things like pushing for paternity leave and pushing for kind of more, just generally more work-life balance. I think mm. it's no longer assumed that you have to sacrifice the rest of your life to succeed in, in any industry. Mm. Um, so people are expecting more from their employers to allow them to have a life outside of work. Um, and, and part of like, the hospitality industry is is really struggling with people. There's a real lack of skilled people mm. who who want to make the hospitality industry their career. And part of that, I think, is because there's a lot of people who are just like, you know what, it's not worth it. Like, it's not worth giving up 15 years of my life working 60, 70, 80 hours a week for not very much money to who knows who knows what you get at the end of it. Mm. Um, and even people who want to kind of be really successful and open their own spaces or get to kind of that highest level, they still also want to be able to settle down or have a family if they want or just even just go out for a drink at a reasonable hour with some friends. Um, it doesn't sound unreasonable, does it? Yeah, it doesn't sound unreasonable, <laughs> and yet it kind of ha has been and, and still is in this industry. So I think a lot of it is kind of this realization that for for the hospitality world to, to not only thrive but, like, survive, mm. then there has – we have to figure out a way to create that balance. And part of that is with – with things like allowing both men and women to have time with their families mm -hmm. and to do things like have flexible working hours and um, be able to give people a, a reasonable rate of pay. Um, yeah, it's all of it. But that's, that's coming both from within the industry, but also I think just 
more broadly within culture and across a lot of industries, there is this shift of mm-hmm. like, people don't want to work all the time mm-hmm. and they want to be able to have a successful career, but still be able to have a life. It feels like it should be possible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, these, these things so. should be possible. Um, you just you just said actually, um, there's this shortage of uh, trained people in the industry, or you know, people wanting to do certain roles in the industry, and it's it's definitely something that certainly in the in the trades trade press, you know, sort of on blogging and what have you, people are talking about it quite a lot. You know, the particularly particularly in the kitchen. And at, um, as I understand it, I mean, I've heard people say they really struggled to get people at the kind of junior levels, like nobody wants to be a chef to party anymore. I don't know. And I think there are a number of reasons for it. And, you know, you just you just said a number of them. Why would you know, it's difficult getting people into the industry. Um, just just as it is, you know, it's, it's a difficult sell, perhaps. Um, there are sort of some timely pressures I suppose as well around that um one of the things I know that you've you're interested in is is kind of immigration and or the restrictions on immigration and the effects that has can have on hospitality has had on hospitality um how how have you seen it affect your the businesses you've been involved with or just the industry in general um as far as well i mean it's it's affected me personally before where i've had because if you couldn't tell already i'm from the states um uh i kind of was was working with this restaurant at one point with the intention of them sponsoring a work visa for me mm-hmm. and that work visa fell through and as a result i had to move back to the states this was a few years ago um in for for various reasons but in part because the the process to become a company that is even eligible to sponsor an employee's visa Mm. is incredibly difficult and incredibly expensive and one that a lot of small businesses or even even larger or mid-sized businesses particularly in the hospitality industry where the margins are so low Mm. um as much as they might like to see, keep someone on, they can't necessarily afford to go through that process. Mm. Um, so that's one challenge. I also think that it's, yeah, it's just, it's just a bit of, it's just really tricky. <laughs> it's, it's a very complicated and it's very tricky. Um, I think like I, I'm really interested to see what happens with Brexit. Mm. I, I don't lots, lots of people are waiting. Really, you know, because I mean, I I know chefs who are from the EU who won't necessarily leave because of Brexit, but they're definitely not seeing the UK as their long term home mm. and and do you think then they were before um potentially uh, i mean yeah. it's hard to tell but um 
I would guess that because you can be a chef anywhere, mm. I think what's tricky is that you can be a chef anywhere. So if you're a chef in the UK and you can't get a visa, you're not gonna then there's yeah. a multitude of other countries in the world that you can go to and get a job with mm. without much of a problem. Um, and the restrictions, so chefs are, I think they still are, on the list of uh, shortage shortages for immigration, like for visas. So right. there's a list of um, jobs in the UK that have kind of publicly known shortages. And there's kind of, not really special tracks, but special kind of caveats Mm-hmm. to allow people to get visas in those industries a bit more easily. But you have the tricky thing of the um, with with chefs. The I think as of a couple of years ago, the minimum pay you had to be getting was like 29,500 pounds a year. It's quite a senior chef, isn't it? Which yeah, if you look at kind of average mm. average pay for chefs, that's that's like kind of a sous chef in quite a decent restaurant. So if you work as a CDP or you work for a much smaller restaurant, then you won't even be eligible, despite the fact that there's a, there's still a shortage and you're part of a company that needs you and all of and you're well trained and all of that stuff. Just the finances around it sometimes just don't make it feasible. So it's just, it's going to be really tricky, I think. And it's, and like you say, there's a lot of people worrying about it, but a lot of it's because it's so unknown. Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah. I think there's a lot of people kind of bracing themselves to just see what happens. Mm-hmm. The people who are, about, you know, one of the arguments in favor of kind of Brexit or just controlled immigration more generally, I suppose, is that, um, you know, it, it uh, reduces, you know, makes it more likely that uh, home, pop, you know, people from the pop- native population will kind of fill these jobs and employers will have to look to that population and will train them up and so on and so on. That's that's kind of the argument. Do you, do you think there's, I mean, obviously there's this shortage of chefs and potentially, you know, other roles within within catering, front of house, and, and so on. Do you, do you think that kind of argument is credible? Do you, do you, see, do you see a shortfall being made up by, by British people if, if it goes that way? I think the tricky thing, it goes back to kitchen culture, where I don't know what the exact numbers are, but if you look at the, the number of graduates from catering college and then the drop-off of people who either don't go into the industry or leave the industry after a year or two or go into other areas of food that aren't necessarily the kitchen. Mm. It's pretty significant. I think women in particular, I mean, catering colleges are generally kind of 50-50 split Mm. men to women, but that doesn't even remotely correlate to the number of women you see working in the hospitality industry. So and these are people who are, you know, and these fully are people who, who spent time and money study. training yeah. to be chefs. Mm. So 
if, they, if you can't get them, if you can't, if you can't get them to stay in the industry, you, you can't. I don't <laughs> yeah, know what you're how supposed like to do. Easy you're gonna get um, and there's even that. cases where a few years ago there was um, a government-funded program to. I think it was called something like the Curry School, mm. with the intention of training up British chefs or, or just British citizens to be able to cook mm. Indian and Bangladeshi and mm-hmm. Pakistani and, and every regional cuisine in between. Mm. Um, and with the intention of then reducing the number of people that immigrate and the kind of uh, the argument that a lot of curry houses were making that mm. they needed to bring chefs over because no one else could, they can't cook the food. Could yeah. cook the food. Yeah, yeah. And so there was a huge amount of money put into this project and they had 25% enrollment. Really? Like the... Why is it the rest of the space like just empty? They just, they just yeah, they just couldn't do it. So you think that's a project that had a huge amount of money put behind it, um, was c- developed with the specific intention of training people up Mm. To, to fill a perceived gap um, and there just wasn't it just they couldn't they couldn't even fill it they couldn't even fill the first group of people like the first batch of people mm. um, so I think it's not it's not a, it's not the complete solution like not, nothing so far has suggested that there's going to be a huge influx mm. Of people to the catering industry. Yeah, I guess we have to wait and see. But uh, yeah, yeah, I guess if, if I were a gambling man, <laughs> yeah. kind of yeah, the odds don't seem don't seem good for it. So, yeah, mm. but I guess we'll just oh. we'll just have to see. I mean, the one the one thing is that the food industry has always been very adaptable and is very good at making the most of challenging situations so um it will be interesting to see how the industry as a whole deals with people it people always want to want to eat want to go yeah. out to eat don't yeah they? So those, you know, and like the demand yeah. for places to eat out is is bigger than ever and interest anywhere, in so. food is bigger than ever so yeah well yeah so we'll just have to see interesting times mm. um so to draw to draw these to a close, I always ask a you know a few more more general questions, and um, there's so there's a couple I thought I'd ask you. Um, one, the first one I thought I'd ask is thinking about food in the UK. Um, however, you want you know food, whether you mean at restaurants or more widely, but thinking about food in the UK. If I say success, who do you think of and why? Oh, that's really hard. Um, food in the UK and success. Or maybe maybe not even in the UK. You know, if just food, is there a sort of, is there a person you think, like a food hero almost, but, you know, someone who, someone who's done, done something good that jumps to mind? I think Ruby Tando is one. Mm. I think she's, She's just like incredible, kind of starting on the Great British Bake Off, 
but then transforming the the kind of presence that that gave her and the platform that that gave her and using it to kind of tackle all of these really challenging problems from mental health to eating disorders to just like with her latest book like we were saying just people's general relationship with food and guilt and um I think that's that's really incredible and in the fact that she's just been able to build and build and build and and open up these conversations despite the fact that she's so young and mm. it's just it's just incredibly impressive and I'm really excited to see what she does next um definitely yeah no that's I think that's a good that's a good answer um I'll ask you another one and um might be a difficult one as well but throw it out there see we'll see just see um what do you want your f career in food to be about? Um, I think, like, if I'm, like, looking back, like, in mm. 40, 50 years' time, um, I would hope that it's kind of about some of the, like, culture stuff that we were talking about before. Like, mm. if I... If I could feel like I figured out a way to create a, a space in a restaurant or wherever um, that felt safe and felt welcoming and felt like it created that balance that people were looking for um, and also created really good food and a really good dining experience and that by being able to create that, the people that pass through that kitchen take take that and take it to wherever they go next. Um, that would that would make me incredibly happy and incredibly proud. I think. Oh, that's, that sounds great. It really does. Um, well, good luck with it. I'm gonna need it. We're going to have to leave it there. We're, we are out of time, but it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thank um, you for having me. Yeah, thank you. Thank you to the listeners for their time as well. Is there anything that, I mean, if, if people are interested in the good egg, you know, interested in seeing sort of where you are and what you're doing right now, uh, where, where should they where Yeah, should they go? so the, the good egg is in Kingley Court, just off of Carnaby Street. Mm -hmm. um, we're open breakfast, lunch and dinner seven days a week. Uh, I'm there most of the time, um, but yeah, that's where you can find me. And you, sort of personally, you're on social media and those kind of things. Oh yeah, and social media, to... I'm uh, Kachel, K-A-C-H-E-L, mm. on Twitter, and the same again with an underscore on Instagram. So people, I guess, can kind of engage with you a bit there yeah. as well and, and uh, say hello if they've listened and, and enjoyed it. Yeah. All right, well, thank you again. We'll leave it there and, and uh, yeah, it's been great. Thank you for your time. Great, thanks.